2: but those who have experienced them can conceive of the enticements of science. In other studies, you go as far as others have gone before you, and there is nothing more to know. But in a scientific pursuit, there is continual food for discovery and wonder.
4: You don't know what the creature's gonna be capable of. Is he gonna leap up and kind of strangle, find sound? what's he going to do? And that sense of the unknown, from Frankenstein's point of view, is where the horror is. From the creature's point of view, of course, there isn't horror, there's just simple cruelty.
5: This is really what I find fascinating at the core of Frankenstein. It's understanding not just what animates a being in terms of life, but what animates it in terms of spirit. And those, I think, are themes that are central to the Romantic tradition.
6: It was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. Those are the first words that Mary Shelley wrote of a short story that developed into her novel Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus. Frankenstein is a philosophical novel, a gothic horror... One of the first science fiction fantasies, and as Northrop Fry observed, a precursor of the existential thriller. Since it was first published on the 1st of January, 1818, the over ambitious scientist Victor Frankenstein and his almost human, monstrous creation have become universally recognizable characters and embedded cultural archetypes. What is truly remarkable is that Mary Shelley was a teenager when she wrote it. The poet Percy Shelley, Mary Shelley's husband, called Frankenstein one of the most original and complete productions of the day. And more recently, the director Guillermo del Toro has called it mind-blowing. Hello and welcome to On the Road with Penguin Classics, the podcast that takes a stroll around the world's favourite books. I'm Henry Elliott, the author of the Penguin Classics book, And today I'm going to descend into charnel houses to explore the hidden laws of nature and cross seas of ice to debate questions of morality, all in the city of Bath in the west of England, where Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. And we're sitting at the moment outside a little coffee shop in Abbey Churchyard, just in front of the extraordinary Bath Abbey. And I'm delighted to introduce our two guests for today's podcast. Anil Seth is Professor of Cognitive and Computational Neuroscience at the University of Sussex, a European Research Council Advanced Investigator, a former Wellcome Trust Engagement Fellow, and the author in 2021 of Being You, A New Science of Consciousness, which The Guardian called brilliant and profound. And Fiona Sampson, MBE, is a prize-winning poet and Emeritus Professor of Poetry at the University of Roehampton, from 2005 to 2012, she was the editor of Poetry Review. She is a fellow with the Royal Society for Literature and author of In Search of Mary Shelley, The Girl Who Wrote Frankenstein, which was published in 2018 on Frankenstein's Bicentenary. Welcome both. It's so great to have you here. Thank you, <laughs> um, Fiona, if I could start by asking you a question. Frankenstein was written by a teenager, and you first read it when you were a teenager yourself. What is it about this book that keeps you returning to it over the years, do you think?
4: I think I return to Frankenstein because I think it's compelling to stumble across not one but two archetypes in the same really very compact and beautifully written novel. But I think that when I was a teenager, what appealed to me was in fact its appeal. It seems to me the whole novel is a great cry for understanding. It is a novel, in fact, about consciousness. It's a novel from the inside out, which is exactly what's been lost in that kind of popular culture reception of Frankenstein. It's a set of frames, isn't it? And at its heart is the creature who comes and speaks to Frankenstein and makes an appeal for sympathy, actually makes an appeal for love and to be given a mate. And then that's framed by Frankenstein's account of I've done something terrible, I know I have, but an appeal to Captain Walton for understanding. I did this, it was pure love of science. And then another overreacher, often forgotten, the sea captain, Captain Walton, who writes home to his sister, all three of these are in the first person, appealing for sympathy and support in his great adventure to go to the ultimate fool to go as far north as you can. And when you're an adolescent and you feel that nobody in the world except you has struggles, this sense of these boxed sets Mm. of appeals that other people struggle, other protagonists are doing extraordinary things (laughs) but having difficulty with them, is very intimate. It's a very intimate novel.
6: It definitely is, and and what a wonderful reaction. I can't wait to unpack some of that over our conversation today. And and Anil, as a... As a scientist yourself, how do you respond to reading a novel like this about a a supremely over-ambitious scientist? He says at one point that his ambition is to penetrate into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her
5: hiding places. What what do you make of that? When I was reading the book, I actually underlined that sentence. I thought it was a fantastic sentence, and... I have to make a confession, though, because it's the first time I read it. Uh I'd always assumed that I'd read Frankenstein at some point when I was a kid, but reading it recently, I realised I hadn't. And one of the triggers for that was the impression that Frankenstein himself gives, the archetype, as as you were saying, Fiona, the archetype of Frankenstein these days, from movies and so on, is as if this mad scientist running around crazily, doing things terribly irresponsibly, but the Frankenstein that comes across in the book is very different. Yes, he's hubristic. Yes, he might be blinkered. He might not be thinking about the consequences of what he's doing. But he's a very humane person. He, seems, he comes across as not that dissimilar, actually, from some of the, the scientists that we, we have around us today. So I think that this ambition to penetrate into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places, that, that is very familiar. I think that is something that animates many scientists these days. And there's this walking the line between mechanising who we are as humans, but also recognising that we are part of nature and not apart from nature. That's what I think the mission, certainly the way I think of science, that's one of its main missions.
6: Fantastic. Well, I'm so thrilled that you're both here to discuss this book today because I think the book captures, you know, the poetry and the science of the time and of Mary's sensibility. And I think you'll, you'll both bring such fascinating interpretations to it. Um, Fiona, Anil's already started to s- describe mm. what uh, this character of Frankenstein is like. In your wonderful biography of Shelley, you, the way you do it is almost through a series of portraits of her through her life. And I wonder, if you were going to do the same with Victor Frankenstein, how would you paint his portrait at the beginning of his story before he goes off to university?
4: I think the most telling description is quite early on. Mm. So this is, this is Walton writing home to his sister before Frankenstein has told his story. And he says, Will you smile at the enthusiasm I express concerning this divine wanderer? You would not if you saw him. You're somewhat fastidious, but this only renders you the more fit to appreciate the extraordinary merits of this wonderful <laughs> man. Sometimes I have endeavoured to discover what quality it is which he possesses that elevates him so immeasurably above any other person I ever knew. I believe it to be an intuitive discernment, a quick but never-failing power of judgment, a penetration into the causes of things, unequalled for clearness and precision. Add to this a facility of expression and a voice whose varied intonations are soul-subduing music. And that soul subdue music always makes me smile because actually I think what she's saying is he has a posh accent <laughs> and
5: therefore he's
2: <laughs> one of us.
4: Um, but also what's fascinating about this passage is of course that it's a description of all the intellectual virtues that romanticism embraces. Away with book learning, intuitive discernment, a kind of ability to measure the world around you on your own, on your own metal is what proves not only the world but yourself in other words it's a portrait of in a way the start of modernity that great romantic shift that displaces the divine puts the human in the center of a new cosmogony and says man is the measure of all things therefore man has to be the sensitive plant to use um, the title hmm. of the percy Shelley poem we have to be much more intuitive, alert, sensitive, sensible in the romantic sense. And we discern more about the nature of things by being that way. So there is Frankenstein at the very start being set up as a great romantic observer.
6: Yes. Gosh, fascinating. Well, thank you, Fiona. Well, having sort of set the scene like that, let's set off into the city of Bath to talk more about this extraordinary novel. Well, we're just crossing Abbey Churchyard now to the site of where Mary Shelley lived in Bath. And really, this is such a beautiful spot to be standing in. We're just in front of the the west end of the 16th century Bath Abbey, which has an incredible sculpted uh, façade. um, Both towers in front of us are um, representations of Jacob's Ladder with angels climbing up and angels falling down. And, of course, falling angels will be something we'll be talking about later. But Bath, of course, is a West Country spa town. It was a hugely popular Georgian resort. Um, And so what we see today is beautiful Bath, golden stone in Georgian style, lovely palisades, stunning late 18th century and early 19th century buildings all around us and we're here in Bath at all because this is where Mary Shelley wrote the bulk of Frankenstein she moved into lodgings on this spot in September 1816 and lived here for some months with Percy Uh, Their baby, William, who was just eight months old when they first arrived here, Uh, a Swiss nursemaid called Elise, and her stepsister, Claire Claremont. And really, that's why they were here, Fiona, wasn't it? Because Claire was pregnant by Byron, and they were trying to stay away from London to keep this pregnancy secret.
4: Yes, I always think it's a really funny form of discretion to move into the very centre of fashionable baths, <laughs> oh, yeah. right by the Roman baths, which, okay, then had not really been rediscovered, but suddenly right in Abbey Churchyard, right by the Abbey, which was then as now the centre of visitors' bath. Right. Um, so here they were in. The Abbey Churchyard, and they were renting rooms which Mary found because she was always a practical one, she was expected to do all of that above a bookseller's, a a lending library, which they probably thought was really appropriate and sort of, you know, cloistered.
6: Especially as she was writing this novel, she was also writing a a travel book about their experiences around Europe. It's nice that the, the manuscript of Frankenstein exists in two mismatched notebooks, doesn't it? And one seems to have been bought in Bath while she was living That's
4: right. One seems to have come from Geneva and one seems to have been bought here. And yes, absolutely. She's writing up her travels, which is actually the story of her elopement journey two years earlier with Percy. She's writing Frankenstein and she's undergoing a whole series of major life events. And all of this compressed into six months during which time she's writing her first novel.
6: It is extraordinary. Well, let's just step back a little bit and recap, you know, the famous circumstances that led to the writing of Frankenstein. In July 1814, Mary aged just 16 eloped with the young romantic Percy Bysshe Shelley, who was only 21 at the time. He was still married and had a young child, but they eloped to Europe, travelled around with this stepsister, Claire. They came back and then they left again and in 1816 they arrived on the shores of Lake Geneva and Fiona, can you just describe what that scene was in Geneva?
4: The Shelley household got there first, even though actually they were following Byron, because Byron had been forced into exile from which he would never return because of the scandal of his divorce. And the reason the Shelleys were following Byron was that Claire Clermont had just started an affair with Byron and said to the shows, oh, I think you'd find him really stimulating, intellectual, artistic company. Why not let's follow him? And bizarrely, I mean, Claire, having been such an unreliable narrator already for the two years that they'd all been together, nevertheless, they took up her idea and they went and rented a house on the shores of Lake Geneva. Byron arrived a few weeks later and rented Villa Diodati, which is up above, overlooking Uh, Lake Geneva, and in Coligny, which was then a village, is now a suburb of Geneva. It's a beautiful view, you you do see the lake, you do see Jura. you do see the mountains beyond, and uh, Mary writes home about seeing terrific storms breaking over the lake. Mm. Of course, one reason she does so, it's 1816, it's a year without a summer, so there is frost in August people are starving across Europe um, because, because of the
6: eruption of the um, Mount, Mount Tambora in 1815 which created a volcanic winter exactly. across the world.
4: So a lot of you know starvation conditions across a lot of central Europe and the Shelleys really interestingly given that their whole shtick is to be observers of the world around them kind of there's no mention of anybody starving <laughs> anywhere in their journals or in their travel that writing or anything. Just as, two years earlier, they make their journey, their elopement journey, to Switzerland across the battlefields of Napoleonic France. And again, the only mention of this is kind of complaints that the villages, the half ruined villages don't offer them hospitable enough accommodation. <laughs> it's a really extraordinary kind of political blind- blindness, and socio-political yes, yes. blindness, which considering that Frankenstein could also be read as a political novel, a novel in which the creature is the original son is is astonishing.
6: That is strange. Anil, Fiona's painted this wonderful picture of, of his two households meeting at Villa Diodati in this strangely overcast, stormy summer. And of course, famously, one of the activities they get up to, to pass the time, is that uh, they start reading these German ghost stories in in French translation, and Byron suddenly announces one evening, we will all write a ghost story. And, uh, Anil, I wonder, would you mind reading Mary Shelley's own account of how she came up with her great idea?
5: She writes, When I placed my head on my pillow, I did not sleep, nor could I be said to think... My imagination, unbidden, possessed and guided me. I saw with shut eyes but acute mental vision. I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out and then, on the working of some powerful engine, show signs of life and stir with an uneasy, half-vital motion brilliant brilliantly read and what a brilliant description it's an amazing passage isn't it it's a really amazing passage it's fantastic introduction of course I mean that's that's the, the I think the 1831 edition
6: that's right exactly and she she says um you know that same introduction but essentially she just to write the story she made a transcript of this waking dream that she'd had now in your book being you which is such a brilliantly sort of radical book in the way we think about perception and consciousness at all you describe how human consciousness itself is a kind of waking dream and I wonder how do you respond to this description of a of an inspiration
5: (laughs) I I think it's quite difficult because of course it's it's hard to exactly know what what Mary Shelley meant by that at the time I think it was relatively conventional maybe to describe things in those terms when it may just have meant that was what she was imagining that was what she was really thinking rather than it was actually a a literal transcript of a a dream but there is this I think this fascinating continuity between what we call dreams what we call imagination and what we think of as everyday normal perception often we tend to think of them as opposites so the temptation is to think when we walk around the world in in our waking lives we experience it as it is it's just there and it pours itself into our minds through the transparent windows of our eyes and our ears. And when we're imagining, we're kind of conjuring a pale shadow of objective reality. And then when we're dreaming, it's all internal. It's all coming from within, when we're dreaming or hallucinating. But the ideas that I've been wondering about for a while, they're not new ideas at all, like all ideas, they have a long history. But all our experience comes from within. The idea here is that the brain is always trying to figure out what's there. It doesn't have ever direct access to what's there. Kant said this very, you know, very well hundreds of years ago. The brain is always testing its predictions against reality, and what we experience in daily life is not the world as it is, but as Anais Nin said in Seduction of the Monitor, we see things not as they are, but as we are, and our brains are generating our experience of the world, even though it doesn't seem like that. And when we dream, of course, it's the same process, but now our brains, predictions our brains, hypotheses are unconstrained by what's actually there because we're not getting sensory data in. But in all cases, we experience the world from the inside out rather than from the outside in. And imagination, I think, is, is a similar thing. It often lacks the perceptual vividness of a dream or of everyday experience. But the same basic process of the brain testing its ideas is at the heart of it.
6: Fascinating, and it's so interesting that at one point Frankenstein in the novel says that the whole series of my life appeared to me as a dream. It's almost I feel like what you're describing is very close to the romantic view of the world of this kind of uh, you know generating. You know the reactions within oneself are as important as what. Yeah, you see I found out there.
5: this aspect fascinating as well. This whole shift from the Enlightenment thinking to the uh-huh. Romantic tradition, where you know, my previous background, my, my sympathies were more allied with Enlightenment ideals, really in terms of science. But then, as science has tried progressively to understand the human and not just the world around the human, then of course these traditions begin to converge, and this is really what I find fascinating at the core of Frankenstein. It's understanding not just what animates a being in terms of life, but what animates it in terms of spirit, in terms of consciousness, in terms of awareness, in terms of agency and will and emotion. And those, I think, are themes that are central to the Romantic tradition.
4: And of course, Romanticism is the start of experimental science, really. So we think of it as feeling-led, But at the same time, it's also taking the observation part of the human very seriously. And it's a time when last-blown techniques, lenses, apparatus is being developed. It's a time when chemical discoveries, discoveries to do with electricity, are being actually the stuff of entertainment. They are the stuff of public
6: lectures. Well, and what a perfect segue to the fact that when Mary was living here, she attended scientific lectures given by a man called dr charles wilkinson at the kingston pump room which was literally next door to where she was lodging he had a um, this kind of laboratory of chemical equipment and would give these lectures and this center of science in bath was the precursor to what would become bath's royal literary and scientific institution and that's where we're going to go next to talk about contemporary science at the beginning of the 19th century
2: I paused, examining and analyzing all the minutiae of causation, as exemplified in the change from life to death and death to life, until from the midst of this darkness a sudden light broke in upon me, a light so brilliant and wondrous, yet so simple that while I became dizzy with the immensity of the prospect which it illustrated, I was surprised that among so many men of genius who had directed their inquiries towards the same science, that I alone should be reserved to discover so astonishing a secret. Hi, Betsy.
6: Yes. Hello, I'm Henry. Well, we've just crossed the beautiful Queen's Square in Bath and entered the stunning Bath Royal Literary and Scientific Institution, a really beautiful Palladian Terrace building on Queen's Square. And I'm delighted that we've been welcomed in by Betty Susha, former Chair of Directors at the BRLSI and part of the team involved in reopening this institution in the 1990s. Betty, thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Now, Betty, you were part of the campaign that helped to install the plaque to Mary Shelley in Bath. And I wonder, why was it important to you to mark that connection between Mary and this city?
7: Well, my first interest, really, was to correct the uh, gender balance in plaques in Bath because there were many more for males than there were for females. But the reason I got particularly interested in Mary Shelley was first because Peter Lovesey, in his 1999 book uh, questioned why that wasn't a plaque. And secondly, we knew that Angela Carter and Christopher Fraley had tried to get a plaque for Mary Shelley, but had been turned down. So Gosh. when I went on the Frankenstein Walk that Sheila Hammond from Bristol set up, I got enthusiastic about it. And I approached uh, Stephen Bird at the Heritage Services, and he thought, a global icon, we should be doing this. Mm-hmm. And so he helped me uh, get the plaque.
6: That's fantastic. And then it was unveiled by Christopher Frayling.
7: It was, and he actually gave a talk at the, uh, the institution on her, and we uh, used the year 2018, because that was the 200th anniversary of the publication.
6: Perfect, perfect. Now, we were just talking in Abbey Churchyard, where Mary uh, was lodging, about her interest in contemporary science, and about the fact that she attended lectures on science and electricity while she was living in Bath. But this was an interest that she'd had from her childhood, right, Fiona, because growing up um, in the household of her father, William Godwin, she'd been exposed to all sorts of luminaries from the worlds of arts and science, including Sir Humphrey Davy, who um, you know was famous for giving public experiments and, and demonstrating galvanism uh, in public. Uh, so this was something she was. This was a world she was familiar with, right?
4: Yes, I think we forget that Mary, like the women of her era, was in effect an autodidact. But she was an autodidact who couldn't have been better placed because she had her father's library and she had her father's intellectual community to to teach her, as it were, and to normalise not only art and the kind of publishing of literary texts, but thinking, and thinking as being at the cutting edge both politically and in terms of science, in terms of the nature of being. So for her there was no division, as it were, between the arts and sciences, even though it is this era where experimental science is coming to the fore, experimental science is almost recreational, gentlemen's cabinets of instruments, but for those with less money, these public lectures, like the ones she came to hear. So it was natural that when she decided she was going to write Frankenstein, she, as part of her research, alongside suddenly switching from reading classics in Latin and ancient Greek. She suddenly starts reading novels for the first time, but she also reads Sir Humphrey Davy's Introduction to Chemistry. She wants to get it right. And of course, as well as talking about her dream in the introduction to the 1831 edition, she talks there, doesn't she, about how there had been discussions at the Villa di Adati mm. about... What replaces the divine spark in a world after the fall of God? What is a spark? Is it literally a spark? Is it literally electricity? Uh Aha.
6: And it's interesting that Dr Wilkinson, whose lecture she was attending here, his lecture room is described as being supplied with an extensive assortment of philosophical and chemical apparatus. We can almost see Frankenstein's garret room there. Um, And he himself had worked on a book called Elements of Galvanism in 1804. So this idea of electricity as a spark of life was very current.
4: Yes, and what's really interesting is, of course, that Galvin and his nephew, their experiments where famously, they notoriously they pass an electric current through the body of a frog and then through the body of an executed criminal, which then reacts. Whether those prove that the electricity is in the body and therefore it is a spark of life or simply that bodies conduct electricity, which is what we now know to be the truth. <laughs> so this... Sort of inexact experiment is 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 the cusp of the whole idea about what's the spark of life.
5: Well, I think there's such an interesting historical development of that that initial controversy. Because on the one side we you have uh, Galvani and Aldini, his nephew, and on the other you had uh, Volta, who was the the scientist who was claiming, no, in fact, yes, the electricity is is formed by the materials not by the body itself. And so he did these experiments as a counterpoint to Galvani's, where he replaced the body with just some other stuff and he got the same effect. Mm. So it does seem like Volta won the day, of course, and we now have batteries and we know how electricity works. But interestingly, of course, electricity turns out to be still absolutely fundamental to how life works, how the brain works, how consciousness works. There's uh, a biologist in... Boston at Tufts University called Michael Levin, who's doing amazing work on on bioelectricity, of showing how electrical fields generated by organisms can guide how they develop, can guide their function, can change the organisation of organisms at a very fundamental level. And the temptation is to kind of dismiss this as as Frankenstein, which is a term I absolutely loathe because it doesn't pay tribute to Frankenstein, the character, the scientist in the book. And it just brings all these kinds of very unhelpful perspectives on what modern science is doing. Neurons in the brain communicate through electricity. Electricity turns out to be fundamental. So in some sense, although the divine spark was not electricity, that isn't the secret of life, it's still essential to life and all its operations. But I think
6: (laughs) when I was reading your book... Anil, I was thinking if Mary Shelley were to read your book today, I think her biggest surprise would be the fact that today we, you say we not only have a deep understanding of what makes life possible, but many new tools to modify and even
5: create it. And I wonder, could you just unpick that a little? Life is not one thing. I think this was part of the key to its detailed scientific understanding that instead of treating life as one big scary mystery in the search of one eureka moment, a spark of life, a divine spark, Elon vital, life turns out to manifest in many different ways. Organisms have metabolism, you know, they, they consume, they generate energy, they have homeostasis, they regulate themselves and they remain in particular states, they reproduce. Lots of different features characterise life. And this problem of understanding life was eventually not solved, but rather dissolved into a series of other, more tractable mysteries. And of course, today we still don't understand everything about life. But the sense that life is beyond the realm of science, beyond the realm of physics and chemistry, that doesn't exist anymore. Life is, in this sense, naturalised. And of course, we do have tools these days to manipulate life, to change its expression... And there's even a discipline now of artificial life. And this isn't building eight-foot-tall creatures. It is more about developing living systems really from the ground up, synthetic genomes, synthetic cells, things that exhibit the characteristics of life but are really built from the ground up. And coming back to Frankenstein, it really struck me that most of the, the narrative about Frankenstein is a narrative of giving life to a creature. But really what seems to matter about Frankenstein's creature is not the bestowing of life, but the bestowing of the ability to feel, mm. to have experience. Without that element, I don't think any of the story really works. That seems to be the central moral claim of the story. And today that also has an important echo, because now people are starting to think about understanding consciousness, I mean, that's what I try to do, but also even creating it. Nobody knows how to do that, but also we don't know how to guarantee that we can avoid doing it either. In artificial intelligence, which is a really accelerating discipline, there's this quite blasé debate about creating AI that is not only intelligent, but also aware. I think this debate is misguided in many ways because it tends to associate consciousness, experience, with intelligence. I think that's a very human exceptionalist position. We think we're intelligent, we know we're conscious, so we think the two things go together and we want to reserve consciousness for species like us when, in fact, it might be more widespread. On the one hand, this is a bit reassuring. Consciousness is probably not just going to come along for the ride as our chatbots get more articulate. But it also raises a warning that we shouldn't be so blasé about the technologies we develop, whether it's developing technologies in life or technologies in consciousness.
6: Anil, I think you've absolutely put your finger on the central issue of this book, which is that once Frankenstein's creature becomes alive and conscious, what then happens to him? So let's leave the institution now to go and discuss what happens next. And Betty, thank you so much for having us here today. It's been a real pleasure to see inside the institution and to see this link with the early scientific lectures that Mary Shelley attended when she was in this city.
7: Absolutely. Thank you.
6: Fiona, as we walk to our next stop, it's worth remembering that Frankenstein says that to examine the causes of life, we must first have recourse to death. And while Mary was writing this novel, she was very aware of both the fragility of life and the presence of death, wasn't she?
4: Yes, she was. I think it's very strange that Frankenstein is such a novel of ideas, but it comes out of such embodied experience. By the time that Mary is writing this novel, about which of course she will later say, oh well I was a nearly silent listener to these intelligent discussions about the nature of life when I was at the Villa Diodati. She's already had two babies, Uh the first of whom is apparently premature though I'm not sure whether the child was premature because it actually lived for a fortnight after after birth in a a time before incubators and so on, but who has died and she has an eight-month-old and indeed in the December while she's writing the novel, she falls pregnant for the third time. Um, She is in Bath because her stepsister is going to have a baby in December. Uh She is surrounded also by death because um, it's a time when both her sister kills herself and Percy's first wife kills herself. It's a a time where Mary is thinking about the instruments of life, but actually her embodied experience is quite a lot of giving birth and death.
6: Yes, gosh.
4: And one way to read Frankenstein, of course, is as a kind of feminist parable about what happens when the guys come in and try and play God with birth, with creation of a human, what what has gone wrong? I'm not sure that that is actually what Mary was exploring, but it's certainly a very strong way to, to read the novel.
6: A fascinating way to read it. And
5: isn't there this suspicion that when Frankenstein's creature is first created, that its sensibilities are sort of more typically female than male, and a sort of sense of caring and nurturing? or Well,
4: a, well yes, is... I mean, certainly he's born innocent, isn't he? He's born yeah. in a Rousseauian way. He's a, quote, noble savage. He's born without original sin, the kind of traditional Christian way, but original innocence, which we now think of as quite natural, from which flows all the child-centred education, which Frankenstein, the novel, also models.
6: Well, let's go to our next location to continue that discussion.
3: How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC.
2: The sea, or rather the vast river of ice, wound among its dependent mountains, whose aerial summits hung over its recesses. Their icy and glittering peaks shone in the sunlight over the clouds. I suddenly beheld the figure of a man at some distance advancing towards me with superhuman speed. Thank
6: you. Four, please. Yeah, thanks. That's great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, we've walked up a slight incline into uh, Victoria Park, and we're having a cup of tea at the Royal Pavilion Cafe, looking over the old bowling green. And the reason we're sitting here is that during the winter months in Bath, this grass below us is transformed into an ice rink, a sea of ice in the middle of uh, Bath. And that was the only tenuous link I could find to the central uh, location of the novel Frankenstein, which is the extremely dramatic glacier, the Mare de Glace, the sea of ice high in the Alps. It's interesting that the The novel, Frankenstein, is kind of bookended by these icy scenes uh, set in the Arctic Ocean. And then at the centre of it as well is this extremely icy uh, moment when Frankenstein, having created his creature and then abandoned it, finally meets him again high up in the Alps in this very dramatic landscape. Mary Shelley herself visited the Mer de Glass and described it in her journal as the most desolate place in the world. Iced mountains surround it. No sign of vegetation appears except on the place from which you view the scene. We went on the ice. It is traversed by irregular crevices whose sides of ice appear blue while the surface is of a dirty white. Now, the centrepiece of the novel, of these chapters where... Frankenstein and his creature meet above the Mare de Glace. And the the creature gives his account of his development from the moment of, sort of emerging into life to this moment of meeting. And it's interesting that while Mary was writing this section, while she was living in Bath, she was reading John Locke, who, of course, had this tabula rasa theory of knowledge that we're a kind of blank slate as we emerge in this world. And, Anil, how do you find this... Um, you
5: know, does this does this ring true? Her description of a consciousness developing. I find it quite hilarious, actually. I mean, it, the the debt to John Locke is very apparent. Right. So there's this beautiful part of the book where Frankenstein's creature is in a hovel next yes. to this little cottage in which this very kind of Wordsworthian family live—a a blind old man and his uh, his children—and yep. through just observing them through a little peephole. He is able to acquire all of language, <laughs> yeah. pretty much all of human history and culture. Uh, he he comes to know almost everything. And and Locke's idea is is of course the idea that indeed we are blank slates, and that there's it's just this process of accumulation of information from experience that underpins. All that we know. And there's been this continual now back and forth between these ideas of Locke, which are called empiricism, and the idea that there's some kind of inbuilt structure. And of course, the truth is somewhere in the middle. Evolution has made sure that over many, many generations, our brains just hardwire in things which are useful for, for them to have. The fact that light comes from above, the fact that the physical world behaves in certain ways. So we are not blank slates. But having said that, there is a lot of space for learning from experience and not just in terms of what language we might speak but in terms of really how we perceive the world and we see again some modern echoes of this in artificial intelligence over the last few years we have these these systems now large language models or models that are able to generate images synthesize images that are extraordinarily impressive that are taking people by surprise even people working within the area and there's this notion of the Unreasonable effectiveness of large amounts of data. It does just seem if you take a naive neural network, a very unstructured model of some aspects of the brain, and train it on an inordinate amount of data, it can acquire capabilities and capacities that, that seem surprising. And it
6: feels like just in the last few weeks, people are really sort of starting to get worried about that. And, and you know, we're hearing stories of Elon Musk and Wozniak at Apple kind of signing letters or kind of worrying about the future of AI and whether we're going too fast?
5: I think people have been worrying about it for a long time. It's just that now these worries have gained a a significant public momentum. Uh, Just the other week, Jeffrey Hinton, actually, he was one of the pioneers of this so-called deep learning approach. He resigned from Google, not because he had a particular beef with Google, but just so that he was free to express his concerns. And there's certain echoes to... Frankenstein in, in, in Jeffrey Hinton as well, he was really worried about the consequences of the technology that he helped introduce right, right. into the world and has changed his mind about the potential for harm to humanity right. that might arise.
4: Because The interesting thing about the deep learning model is, isn't it, it comes back to this question about consciousness, it comes back to the idea of a, a locus, a locus of experience, a locus of synthesising, processing thought. I mean, I couldn't agree more about the, the Lockean traces in Frankenstein. And I think that they come out really clearly when she battles, as all the empiricists do, Locke, Barclay, Hume, with abstract thought. Well, where does that come from then? What is that? As you say, there's an kind of oscillation between, oh, it's all structure, oh, it's all um, empirical. And so she resolves it by miraculously giving her creature the ability to teach himself to read. <laughs> and not only does he lodge next to cottages who are the paradigm of human relationship, but they're also political revolutionaries, so he learns to think, you know, correctly, but also, you know, he finds his book bag, and he's so neat just <laughs> now, we'll have Paradise Lost, so that's make sure, you know, he has an education in religion and divine, we'll have Plutarch's Lives, so there's external, life stories of the great, and we'll have Sorrows of Young Werther, the Bildungsroman that was so influential in Romantic thought, the inner development the story of uh, sentimental education yes he comes across this
6: sort of leather portmanteau in the woods doesn't it it's it's, these three perfect books happen to be inside it's yes this section it's sort of Muriel Spark has has a good line in her book about Mary Shelley called Child of Light Mm. where she says that the section about the cottages is is Mary Shelley at her worst (laughs) and there is an element of it, it is very convenient that he finds this hovel they're exactly the right sort of people. He gets exactly the right sort of books. Um, it's particularly Paradise Lost, isn't it, which which captures the creature's imagination. And of course, the epigraph to the novel is Adam crying to God saying, I didn't ask you to make me.
4: And I didn't ask you to make me fallible. (laughs) It's you who made me fallible and therefore you are responsible for my sin and my fall, which is of course what the creature says. You made me unlovable and made unlovable. I therefore became despairing and then I became violent. I acted out, you know.
5: That's one of the things that really struck me on actually reading the book rather than just thinking I've read the book is the picture of the creature Changes enormously, I had this this impression in mind of this sort of towering, lumbering, heavy set, dull, rigid figure without an interest of its own with life, certainly, but without without sympathies, without emotions
4: absolutely, and that of course is why it speaks so closely to things like ai it 's not just a myth let 's call it that about scientific overreaching it 's also about the uncanniness of what we don't know, which might excel, might exceed us, might be more than us, whether or not man-made.
6: And that is extraordinary, isn't it, how we, we kind of flip between sympathising for Frankenstein in his dilemma, but then for this creature in a terrible plight, and, and, it, and it does switch between them, doesn't yes.
4: it? Yes. It's a really a short novel, but it's really capacious, because actually, unlike the films, it doesn't tell us whose side to be on in effect it sort of reaches a hand out to the reader and says, and probably you too are also, you know, implicated in one way or another because you are simply the next sort of ring, the next frame out beyond Walton, beyond right. Frankenstein, like beyond yes. the creature. Because it is a novel partly about reading, isn't it?
5: Absolutely. It's about
4: coming into consciousness through reading. And when Annel was talking about, you know, the kind of waking dream of consciousness, I mean, one of the fascinating things about reading is, of course, isn't it, that in reading, we have Mary Shelley's dream. I mean, my how I picture Frankenstein won't be how you picture him. How I picture the creature won't be quite how you picture him. We we redream the dream. Mm-hmm. And you can also see Godwin and political justice in this this other this this ragged yes. ragged trouser, but not a philanthropist. You know, who who isn't allowed equal rights, who isn't allowed access to society.
6: And the great sort of failing of Frankenstein is to abandon him on the instant that he comes alive. And, and he, you know, he, he says, unable to endure the aspect of the being I had created, I rushed out of the room. And, and Anil, you say in Being You that were we to wittingly or unwittingly introduce new forms of subjective experience into the world, we would face an ethical and moral crisis on an unprecedented scale. Once something has conscious status, it also has moral status. And this is something that Frankenstein doesn't. Grasp initially. He,
5: he doesn't seem to grasp it, and his failing, I think, is in, in a couple of different ways. So there's his hugely irresponsible just abandoning ship and running away as soon as the, the creature comes to life. But there was also in the design of, of the creature this incredible attention to making it function as a biological being with all the capacities and capabilities it has, but a neglect of the social element yes. of the self, not really thinking, it didn't seem to think about that, Essential aspect of what a human self involves. If you think about what it means to be a human self, there are many different aspects. I mean we have bodies and we have emotions. We know this object in the world is our body and other things in the world are not. We also have volition and agency. These are things that Frankenstein endows to his creature. We have memories and a sense of personal identity, which is interesting for the creature because it never seems to have a name. It's the rapture, yes. the
6: fiend, but it's... Or the demon, yes. The demon,
5: but it doesn't actually have a name at all anywhere in the novel. But then there's also, for humans, there's the social self, you know, the aspect of what it is to, to be me or, or to be you that's refracted through the minds of those around us. And that's an essential component of being human. We are, we are very social creatures, and without that, then it's very hard to predict what will happen to these other levels of self, this basic drive to stay alive, this kind of low level, that, that becomes much more dominant aspect of Selford, And we see that play out in the remainder of the novel. Absolutely. Well, we've talked a little bit about how, since the novel was written,
6: the, the characters have uh, developed into these archetypes and these kind of cliches, which are very different to how Mary presents them in the novel. And so let's step out of a narrative for a short while while we visit our next location to talk a little bit more about the afterlife of Frankenstein.
2: I started from my sleep with horror. A cold dew covered my forehead. My teeth chattered and every limb became convulsed when, by the dim and yellow light of the moon, as it forced its way through the window shutters, I beheld the wretch the miserable monster whom I had created.
6: Well, we've just walked across to Gay Street, which runs down from the circus in Bath, and stepped into the House of Frankenstein, which was opened on Gay Street in July 2021, just a few doors up from the Jane Austen Museum. And I'm delighted that we've been allowed in by the co-founder and creative director of the House of Frankenstein, Chris Harris. Chris, thank you so much for having us.
0: Oh, You're very welcome, actually. Mary Shelley's House of Frankenstein. Mary so it's Shelley. a great celebration of the author herself. That's
6: fabulous. Well, perhaps could you tell us how you came to have the idea for setting it up in the first place?
0: Um, well, Mary Shelley and Bath has been a, a well-kept secret for many, many years, as I'm sure you know, and it's, it was only about four or five years ago that it came to my attention that she, she lived here. Um, I took an interest in her. The more I read about her, the more intriguing she became. Her life, I think, is way more interesting than the book, as great as the book is. I, I just wanted to tell her story. And, and, and you know, the, the, the people I was sharing the ideas with, they were as enthused as I was. My business partner, Jonathan, um, he said, we've got to tell this story. You know, we celebrate Jane Austen here in Bath, and why not Mary Shelley? You know, in my view, she's every bit as important, probably more important. And the appetite was fantastic. It's privately funded. People just wanted to share this story. Everybody knows Frankenstein. That's the beauty of it.
6: Well, it's an incredible achievement. And thank you so much for letting us see around the house today.
0: Um, I mean, one of the things that really comes across from
6: every wall of the museum is the kind of the ghoulish, the horrific aspects of the novel. And, Fiona, I wondered, you know, how how does Mary Shelley create those effects of horror in this novel?
4: Well, the novel, of course, is more understated than the films with which we kind of populate our imagination of Frankenstein. But still she gives us this great description at the start of the novel when she talks about Frankenstein... Putting together the parts of um, different bodies, which he's, you know, he's been a grave robber in effect, hasn't he? Mm -hmm. And he says, I sewed these together. I I thought I'd chosen the most handsome, the most beautiful parts of um, all these, I suppose, young male bodies. But when I put it together, the sum of it was so grotesque that when it came to life, I ran out of the room. So there is. There's the physical incarnation, which hasn't worked. It's a kind of dream that has turned dark. But then there is also that, that moment at which at half past one in the morning when the candles are guttering, the creature first makes his first movements. It's it's a classic dark and stormy night kind of setup. Yeah. But it's also that sense again of Contained possibility—that sense that you, you don't know what the creature is going to be capable of—is he going to leap up and kind of strangle Frankenstein? What, what, what's he going to do? And that sense of the unknown, uh, from Frankenstein's point of view, is where the horror is. From the creature's point of view, of course, there isn't horror; there's just simple cruelty. Yeah,
6: misery. Misery, yes.
4: misery, and cruelty, and ostracization and so, and desolation. So these kind of competing forms of darkness, aren't there, in the novel? Mm. And the novel oscillates between them.
5: That's right. There's both this visceral horror, I think, in in scenes in the book, but really what struck me was this psychological horror that's through it. And that's a different kind of horror. I mean, horror is kind of the wrong word there. I mean, the the overriding emotion for me was this, this desolation, this loneliness, this anguish that pervades the book from the perspective of both main characters throughout. And that's a different take on it than I think I've seen, I'm familiar with from the, from the adaptation.
6: Um, and, and in Being You, you talk about the creation of extremely lifelike inventions, robots, which are almost human, and yet there's something scary about them. What is it about nearly human creations which is
5: so scary? There's this interesting concept that dates back to at least 1970, the Japanese uh, researcher, technologist uh, Masahiro Mori Coin a term, the uncanny valley. And this is the idea that when things are sufficiently distant from appearing like us, then we treat them as sufficiently other, that we may be scared of them, we may recoil from them, but they, they're still different. And then as they get closer to us, there comes this, this, this valley where we feel a particular kind of revulsion, when they're similar but not similar enough. And we see this today in the kinds of robots that people are building, perhaps in the kinds of virtual agents that populate our Twitter feeds and TikTok streams. Things that are designed to be human, but they don't capture the essence of what it is to be human. Their faces, their physiognomy is, is a bit stolid, it's a bit turgid. And there is something very weird about being in the presence of things like this. The Japanese roboticist uh, Hiroshi Ishiguru who's created a series of things he calls Geminoids. He doesn't call them robots or androids, he calls them Geminoids after the, the word for twin. And he's made one of himself. And he's designed them to look as human-like as possible. He's used them to deliver lectures on his behalf. And it's, they are extraordinarily creepy. Objects. They just—it's—it's it's the absence of the spark behind the eyes somehow that gives us a particular emotional response. Quite why we do that, I think, is—is is, I think there's a lot of speculation about it. Is it reaction to potential illness in somebody that we see that that there's, they're dysfunctional in some way, and we need to we need to introduce a gap?
6: Well, let's move on because. One of the things you do so brilliantly here, Chris, is celebrate all the different adaptations of the novel since it was first written. At the top of the house is playing the earliest silent film adaptation, and we know that perhaps the most formative adaptation was the James Whale 1931 uh, black-and-white film starring Boris Karloff as this great lumbering creature. But what is it, do you think, that draws generation after generation back to reinterpreting this story?
0: I think... Even after the book was published, it wasn't that many years—maybe 20, 30 years—where "Franken" was being used as a prefix for anything that was terrifying. And, and I think I understand that Frankenstein was the first book that really went into when science goes wrong. But obviously, science evolves, uh, and, and, and with every new development, whether it's AI or whether it's um, stem cell or whatever it is, there's a worry over it. When Trump was going for president, it was called Franken Trump. When the vaccine, we had the Franken vaccine. That the media will continually use that as a metaphor for anything that's scary. Um, and, and, and subsequently, when the film came out, the Boris Karloff film was, it catapulted it into the, the stratosphere of popular culture, but it already had become part of popular culture in the 1800s.
6: It's, I mean, that film is extraordinary, isn't, isn't it? Because it spawned a series of eight Universal Studios sequels, and then seven Hammer Horror films came out of that. Fiona, do you have a Favorite adaptation, or why do you think we keep reinterpreting?
4: it? I do have a favorite adaptation, and it's Young Frankenstein.
6: <laughs> and the Mel Brooks film. The Mel
4: Brooks, and the reason I love that is because, of course, it's funny about the genre. Right. Um, because I think the James Whale film is extraordinary. It's an incredible sort of encapsulation of the kind of nineteen thirties dream of modernism, isn't it? I mean, the lab is extraordinary. But of course there isn't electrification in the very first, in the 1818 edition, it's chemistry and alchemy. Um, And in fact the first silent movie, where the monster, they burn an effigy and but they show the film in reverse, so the the creature comes out of the bubbling cauldron is much actually closer to the 1818 novel. But what all the films do is they stick on the kind of the hill overlooking the uncanny valley and they leave out the other half of Mary's myth. But we forget altogether the the kind of cry for empathy that the novel oscillates between all the time. We obliterate that half of the story.
5: And when I think of the film descendants of Frankenstein, actually the things that come to mind are not the immediate descendants, the adaptations, but more of the other films that come later that exercise our Promethean fears in, in distinctive ways and actually put the equivalent of the creature more at the centre of things. So I'm thinking of things like 2001, a Space Odyssey. We have HAL. Exactly. Uh, it's not a living creature, but there's a mind Doesn't there. Doesn't
4: want to be switched off. Doesn't
5: exactly. want to be switched off. And we don't hear too much about the creator of HAL and Dr. Chandra, but it's really the experience or, or the, the supposed experience of HAL that's the centre of things and one of the most moving scenes I think in a whole of cinema is when the astronaut Dave Bowman is removing the memory banks of Mm. how one by one and it regresses back to nursery rhymes. And then there's Blade Runner, which I think also has significant echoes of of Frankenstein. Here it's more about the relation actually between life, emotion and consciousness. They have in in Blade Runner, they have this idea of the so-called Voigt-Kampf test. So there's this classic idea of the Turing test, which, came, which was developed by Alan Turing as a test of machine intelligence. And I think very insightfully in Blade Runner, there's this recognition that intelligence isn't the mark of what's important of consciousness. It's, it's emotion. It's feeling. So the Voigt-Kampff test is all about feeling, whether there's feeling present. And there is in, in Blade Runner a dialogue between the replicant, played by Harrison Ford, and his makers in the Tyrell Corporation, which, which mm. when I was reading Frankenstein, mm. I remember mm. echoes of that. And then I think most recently there's Alex Garland's film, Ex, Machina, Ex Machina, yes. Which, which is such a, a beautiful film. And so many things resonate with Frankenstein there. And here it, it begins to be both about the creation and the creator. Again, we, we have this hubristic inventor technologist, Nathan who's sequestered away in a beautifully designed seemingly Danish villa somewhere in the mountains. In the mountains again, there's the Mm -hmm. sublime of the landscape in Mm -hmm. Ex Machina. And he creates, there's this this conceit that it's possible, that he just creates this uh, creature, Ava. And the question here, instead of the Turing test, we now have the Garland test, which again was beautifully set. It was a piece of dialogue in the film, which has since found its way into philosophy of mind as an actual, really useful concept which is the real test is to show you that she's a machine and see if you still feel she has consciousness. So now it's both a test of consciousness but it's also an explicit test of the human, of human gullibility or what it will take for a human to attribute. The conscious status of Ava is left a little bit ambiguous although you do lean one way more than the other but the film I think It returns to what's in the original Frankenstein novel. It gives you the perspectives of both the inventor and the invented. Brilliant. Well, let's move on to our
6: next location to talk a little bit more about that standoff between creator and creation. But Chris, thank you so much for welcoming us to Mary Shelley's House of Frankenstein today. It's been a real privilege to look around it and I highly recommend to listeners coming to visit next time they're in Bath.
0: Thank you very much.
2: As night approached, I found myself at the entrance of the cemetery where William, Elizabeth, and my father reposed. I entered it and approached the tomb which marked their graves. Everything was silent, except the leaves of the trees which were gently agitated by the wind.
6: Well, we've stepped into the wonderfully gothic surroundings of St Mary's Churchyard, Bathwick, uh, which is a little 19th century cemetery, at the centre of which is an old, ruined mortuary chapel. So this, this is a particularly gothic uh, location to discuss this supremely gothic novel. And we're standing, in fact, by the chest tomb of the scientist, Dr Wilkinson, who Mary Shelley heard lecturing on electricity here in Bath. And it says on his tomb, science mourns a son. Now, of course, there's a key scene towards the end of Frankenstein set in a cemetery after Frankenstein has lost almost everyone he loves uh, in one way or another to the machinations of his own creation. Uh, and they're all lying here in the cemetery. And he he comes to visit and suddenly hears this kind of disembodied voice of the of the monster over his shoulder. It's a, one of the most sort of spooky moments in the book. Now, one aspect that I picked up from the House of Frankenstein that I'd love to talk to you about is, is the way that over the years this name Frankenstein has come to apply to both the scientist and his creation. You mentioned earlier, I know, how significantly the... Creation, but monster is never given a name. And so I think in the public consciousness, we quite often describe the monster as Frankenstein.
4: Yeah, I mean, there is a Jekyll and Hyde, isn't there? But there's also simple anglophone jingoism. Frankenstein is a polysyllable and a proper name from another language, therefore, it has sounded weird. (laughs) And in fact, it means castle of the Frankish knights and is. Yes. it's a very normal place name in the Oderwald, just south of Darmstadt. But
6: it, it almost feels like quite an interesting observation on the book, doesn't it? I mean, Danny Boyle directed an interesting National Theatre adaptation of the book in twenty eleven, where. Johnny Lee Miller and Benedict Cumberbatch would toss a coin at the start of each performance to decide who would play Frankenstein, who would play the monster. And I think that demonstrates again this the almost interchangeability of those two characters. I
5: think it speaks to a, another way in which the, the book, much like the creature itself, has taken on a life of its own. That now we can look at it and think, you know, are they, are they part of the same person? Is, is the creature sort of an exteriorization of aspects mm. of the young Dr Frankenstein himself as maybe that's the the emotion compared to the reason I mean I don't think it divides neatly in that way in fact I don't think you can divide emotion and reason neatly in that way at all but it may well be that that was not the intention of, of Mary Shelley but certainly you can see that in it now and it's quite interesting to see I guess how this book does outlive its author in many ways absolutely
6: Fiona, you, I think you capture this so brilliantly in your poem, Modern Prometheus, which, if I can just describe it on the page, it, it's, it's a set of split lines. So you could read it straight across as a single poem. You could also read it as two distinct poems. And forgive me if I'm misinterpreting this, but it strikes me that if you read one, you get Frankenstein. If you read the other, you get the creature. If you read them both, you get a blend of the two. Uh, Thank so,
4: you. That's an absolute summary of what I was trying to do. <laughs> And it's called Modern Prometheus, and I'm going to read it across. Modern Prometheus. He wakes, alone in the lab, to night noises, breath roaring like a machine, heart pistoning life bumps in his chest, a live thing in darkness, not yet separate from the dark, that dresses him, soothing his nakedness with the uniform of authority, committing everything, at least by daylight. He listens without realising, is anybody there? He is rustling, a man alone with fear, doesn't want to be alone, wants to be alone, as night listens back. But something's changing his mind. He squints, wrestling darkness, tries to understand. He wants to see if knowledge is power, if sight lights the mind, if light salts the mind. His pupil stings, his iris winces, and what can he make out? Understanding only a little, and misunderstanding a little more. The clockwork universe like a dream of knowledge.
6: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Fiona. It was beautifully written. It's such an extraordinary poem. Thank you very mm. much indeed. Well. Frankenstein the character is spiralling towards a kind of madness at the end of the novel and in this scene in the cemetery this kind of confrontation again with the monster sets him off on this this kind of obsessive chase across the world so let us also leave this cemetery and obsessively chase them a few uh, hundred yards down the road for a final stop and a final conversation. Well, for our final stop, we've come down to the very distinctive Pulteney Weir in the middle of Bath, where the River Avon streams over three dramatic drops um, in a great sort of swoosh of brown and white foam. And this is a stand-in for the kind of bookends of Frankenstein, set in the Arctic Ocean amid ice flows and, and strange, wild, icy landscapes and ferocious seas. And it's to this place that Frankenstein pursues his creature at the end of the novel. They travel across the world and finally head up further and further north into this less and less hospitable terrain. Uh, Frankenstein at one point calls it a horrible pilgrimage that he's obsessed by. And, Fiona, why do you think Mary Shelley introduces this, this kind of obsessive chase as the finale of her novel?
4: Well, the chase is quite a theme through the book, isn't it? There's a certain amount of the creature pursuing Frankenstein to Scotland and Ireland. Yes. And I think there are two answers to this question. One is the technical answer about the structure of novels, and the other is the conceptual answer. And what's interesting about Frankenstein, of course, I think it shows us the artists doing both. So, the conceptual answer, I think, is just like an ellipsis. It's like this radical openness of the end of the book. It's kind of the dot 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 of the of the white plane right. on the white plane. In fact, I wanted to call my book about Mary Shelley "On the White Plane." That sense of the white plane is the page, which page is printed, but also that sense of yeah, complete openness to interpretation—a tabula rasa, in fact, which is. <laughs> the amazing thing she does in holding these two archetypes and this one myth open and in play. The technical answer I think is that there's what Ian Forster called the naked worm of time. The reason that road movies are such a great trope is that we love the and then and then of Chapman. It's a great way to unspool a narrative. Um, you could think of Bruce Chapman and, and the song lines and you know, there's a sort of one foot after another. Um, and Mary, of course, is, is learning how to write the novel at a time when the great, the big beef United States novels have not yet yes, been written. Right. This is a time when the novel form is still, you know, not embryonic, but it too is oscillating between options. And of course, um, Frankenstein has a frame. and The frame is Walton the sea captain his story of exploring the ultimate fool. And I think that what that does is, it gives an excuse, a circumstantial excuse for the first-person narrative of Frankenstein. Um, just as the creature's first-person narrative is to Frankenstein. So Frankenstein is the witness that allows that. Walton is the witness who allows Frankenstein's first-person narrative. The first person who's really into it, you know, dresses, reaches, again, out of the book towards us.
6: It's um, it a wonderful effect, isn't it, in all good ghost stories where where the supernatural is held at arm's length and then gets closer and closer to you as the reader. And, you know, we've we've kind of heard Walton's account of Frankenstein describing the monster, but suddenly the creature is on the ship. He's disturbed in his writing of the letter that we're reading and, and there's the creature one final time. It's wonderful. Well, Anil, Fiona, thank you so much for joining us today. As a final question, why do you think this novel is... Is so great why are we still reading it 200 years later and getting so much to talk about from it
5: to me on, on my first proper reading of it there's so much more to it than the popular culture version of it that i was previously familiar with suggests we've talked today about so many different ideas about what the novel really is is it a political novel is it a, a story of, of morals and motivation is it a story about scientific hubris of course it's all these things and more And it it seems to me it's a book I'll be returning to over and over again. It does not seem to lose its relevance. And perhaps that's not a surprise because some of the core themes, I'm I'm not gonna suggest that the core theme, but some of the core themes are more relevant today now than they were before. We have accelerating scientific progress. We are increasingly able to engineer, to control basic principles of life. And increasingly we're encroaching on what might be the sort of last bastion of what we think makes us separate from nature, apart from nature, which is human consciousness or biological consciousness, free will, agency. And as we understand more about the biological mechanisms that underpin consciousness, and potentially even come to the stage where we might be able to synthetically manufacture consciousness, whether that's in some future chatbot, or I think more likely in something like a neurotechnology organoid, which are actually made out of brain cells. The lessons that Frankenstein tells us, the complicated interplay of the different moral and ethical concerns and the the manifest consequences they might have, these are getting more, not less relevant.
6: Absolutely. And Fiona, last word to you. Why do we still read Frankenstein?
4: I think it is an enormously capacious myth, which, as Anil says, makes us think about scientific discovery. It makes us think about the shifting ethical grounds that that generates. It makes us think about AI, it makes us think about the nature of consciousness, particularly now we can question it and begin to think about potentially reproducing it. But it also makes us think about othering, about human relationship, about motive, about the secret of life. And I think the secret of life Frankenstein ultimately suggests is not life, but consciousness. I think that that's the side it comes down on. It is the kind of spark behind the eyes, the gaze, the answering gaze, rather than the, the mastery of nature.
6: Well, what a perfect place to wrap up our discussion today. Thank you both very much for coming on the podcast to talk about Frankenstein. Thanks so much, Henry. Many thanks to Anil Seth, Fiona Sampson, Betty Sukar and the Bath Royal Literary and Scientific Institution, Chris Harris and the House of Frankenstein, to Penguin Audiobooks for the clips of Colin Salmon reading from Frankenstein, and to our kind partners, Penguin Classics. I'm Henry Elliott, the producer is Andrea Rangecroft, and the music is by Don Gould. If you enjoyed this episode of On the Road with Penguin Classics, please spread the word and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll leave you with this. When Mary Shelley published the third edition of Frankenstein in 1831 as number nine in Coburn and Bentley's standard novel series, it was the first time her name had appeared on the book. She wrote a new introduction in which she answers the question of how, as a young girl, she had come to think of so very hideous an idea. She casts herself as Victor Frankenstein and her novel as her creature. And now, once again, she writes, I bid my hideous progeny go forth and prosper. She could not have known how very prosperous it would turn out to be.
2: It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. Oh, in the name of God. Now oh, I know what it feels like to be God. Oh.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen,